I'm Daniel Levine, and this is the Bio Report. It was an unprecedented year for M&A activity in the life sciences, but even though Big Pharma returned to deal-making after largely spending 2013 on the sideline, it's been unable to close its growth gap through acquisitions. Specialty pharmaceutical and big biotech companies have been building muscle, and key acquisitions that could address growth for Big Pharma continue to be snapped up by competitors. We spoke to Jeff Green. EY's Global Life Sciences Transaction Advisory Services leader about his firm's new M&A report, at what point the growing price of assets becomes too rich, and what the outlook is for 2015. Jeff, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, Danny. It was a big year for M&A, a record-breaking year, but even though Big Pharma returned to the M&A fray, it seems to continue to lose ground to specialty pharmaceutical companies and unable to close the gap in revenue growth. On the M&A front, what kind of a year was it for Big Pharma and what kind of deals did they make and where did they fail? Well, it was a, it was a good year for, for Big Pharma, as you say, Danny. I wouldn't, I wouldn't say fail so much as kind of, have, they were superseded a bit in the M and A landscape by the specialty pharma players. As um, as we've showed in the report, even though the firepower of big pharma increased uh, fairly substantially over the last few years, uh, the firepower of the specialty pharma and the big biotech uh, increased even more. Big Pharma has a problem, even though the worst of the patent cliff is over, these companies have been unable to keep pace with the growth of the industry overall. How big a gap do they face, and and, and how big a problem is this for Big Pharma? So the way we we looked at that is to compare the consensus forecasts for Big Pharma through 2017 uh, for revenue growth versus what IMS is forecasting, and they, you, I'm sure you're aware they they just recently updated their forecast, and they're looking at four to seven percent annual growth through 2017. They're just looking at the, and this is in terms of drug of sales of, you're talking about. Uh, I'm sorry, you're talking about IMS being in terms of drug sales. Yes, overall, yes, overall, uh, overall drug sales um, for the industry. Um, so if you basically if you project that. From 2013 through 2017, at 4%, and then compare the 16 big pharma companies that we looked at in the aggregate. Um, there's about a hundred billion dollar revenue gap by 2017. In other words, um, if they had grown, if they if they grew at the 4% versus what's forecast, they they would be they would have 100 billion 100 billion more in sales in 2017. So that that's the that's the amount of the gap, and all but uh, all but three of the sixteen companies that we looked at actually have individual individual growth gaps. So you alluded to the concept of firepower a moment ago. Compounding big pharma's problem is that even though its share price is up, it, its firepower relative to specialty pharma companies has lost ground. 
Can you explain the concept of Firepower's track it and how Big Pharma is faring relative to the competition? Sure. It's uh, it's a fairly straightforward concept. What we do is we're we, we're looking at the financial wherewithal um, to do to do M and A. So we look at uh, cash on hand. We look at uh, debt capacity, and we look at the overall equity valuation, um, and you know, make some specific assumptions about the, the debt equity ratio post post an acquisition. And it, what we've done is, for the last three years, we've tracked it for all the three different groups that I mentioned, especially pharma, biotech, and big pharma. And even even though, like I said a few minutes ago, big pharma's um, firepower has increased substantially the last several years. Uh, again, primarily as, as a result of the increase in equity valuation. As you know, um, the the market caps of the biotechs, and especially especially farmers, have run up substantially as well, but, and even more so. So in, in all cases, the uh, the increases in firepower we're seeing are largely due to increases in, in equity valuation. But the uh, you know, big farmers were outpaced by the, by the biotechs and especially farmers. Well, the consequences that these companies are getting outbid and the opportunities they have before them that could help close that revenue gap are, are being capitalized by others. To what extent have key acquisitions been made by biotechs or specialty pharmas? And what does that field that's out there in the way of potential acquisitions now look like for big pharma? Yeah, that's a good question. I think in the past year or so, um, big biotech has been relatively quiet on the M and A front, and rightly so. There's, they've they've had uh, they've been focusing more on their the internal growth um, and the the uh, the R and D pipe. Their R and D pipelines have yielded some some great results so far, and that's um, been directly related to the increases in valuations. Trustly Farm, on the other hand, has been very very active. Um, they they took advantage uh, almost across the board of uh, of uh, the tax inversions, so that most, as you'll see in the report, most of now, especially farmer companies, are domiciled outside the U.S. At least most by by a market capitalization measure, uh, and that in turn, as they as they created value by lowering their tax rates, that actually resulted in increasing their firepower. All other things being equal. So the, the the kinds of deals that you would expect big pharma to do in order to fill growth gaps, for example, buying buying some of the biotech companies, buying especially the pharma companies, they, with some exceptions, did did not do those many of those deals. But it was in fact especially pharma um, companies that were that were very active. In fact, one one company, um, Activis, did two large deals. Uh, I'm sure you're well aware. And the total of the total value of those deals um, was greater than all of the M and A that Big Pharma did in 2014. Well, you, you note that one way that Big Pharma has sought to combat the situation is through acquiring more focused product portfolios. How has this worked out, and is that a viable strategy? Um, I think it's worked out quite well, Annie. Um, we, we've seen that really 2014 was a continuation of a trend that's been developing for the last several years. Uh, with big pharma getting more focused by business, so um, focusing more, say, in biopharma, and in some cases divesting consumer health businesses, animal health business, you know, other assets. We also see them getting more focused by therapeutic area as well. 
Um, and so that that's worked out in a number of ways. We see shareholders rewarding those kinds of transactions with increased valuation. It's also provided the management team with an ability to concentrate on what they do best and divest businesses or products or other assets that are are uh, that in which there are other other players who are better owners of those businesses who can allocate capital more appropriately, who can manage them uh, to maximize value. Well, you talked a little about the inversions that we saw specialty farmers pursuing. This is where companies through acquisition relocate their headquarters to more favorable tax geographies. Is this something that you expect to see continue? Has the U.S. policy changes that instituted rules that discourage companies from do that going to put a a slowdown or a halt to that practice, or have have the companies that really are in a position to take advantage of this already done so? Well, I think it's a little bit of of, of a couple of things, Danny. I think you're right that there's definitely a, you know going to be a slowdown. I don't think it stopped. There's still value to um, you know, to doing the right kind of tax planning, and, and inversion inversion is is one of those strategies that people can employ. It doesn't, they won't, it won't create as much value as, as before the rules change, before the policy change. Um, but, but that, that is still, a, uh, you know, something that, that could be considered. So the flip side of that is to also realize that the companies that have inverted and have lowered their tax rates are now competing for M&A targets with those who haven't inverted. So all other things being equal, they could pay more for a desirable target. That we expect that, that may contribute to you know, increased premia for uh, for M and A in 2015, um, and just you know further um, separates a bit the haves and the haves nots in terms of firepower and the ability to get deals done going forward. Well, the rise in stock prices have certainly given acquirers more muscle, but it's it's also been raising the cost of assets. How how expensive is too expensive, and, and what impact do the Rising prices have on the field of potential acquisition targets. Yeah, it's a good question, and you'll, you'll see uh, one of the charts in our report is we we graph the average market valuation of the specialty pharma and biotech companies that we track in the report. Um, we, we track that that over time, and then we look at the average firepower of the 13 big pharma companies that have growth gaps. And the, in 2014 was the first year in which those lines crossed. In other words, the average um, valuation of the potential targets uh, rose above the average firepower. So again, it's an aggregate measure, but it gives you some indication of what you were, you were talking about um, it, it, it before. It's a measure of how pricey things have gotten. So what, what does that mean for people who still need to do M&A to close their growth gaps? It means being more creative about how you do, how you structure deals, so building in more contingent features. And again, we've seen that that trend accelerating for the last several years, both in the in, in licensing, but also in M&A itself. Um, you know, more contingent features built in as a as a function of of uh, approvals, commercial targets, etc. Um, it, it also means that Big Pharma is looking maybe earlier in the, the R&D cycle to, to do transactions, so when things are less pricier. Um, it also means that M&A has got to be done with, with uh, is more rigor than ever. We, we've seen an increase in improvement in 
in big pharma's uh, M&A uh, processes over the last several years. But this, the, the, the priciness of targets really puts a premium on first ascertaining the strategic fit of the target, making sure that it really does make sense to do the deal. Um, also, the valuation analysis has to be really, um, really rigorous and, and, um, and diligence. But, but I think probably where the rubber hits the road is around synergy planning. So identifying exactly how you're going to capture the synergies that you promise to the market, doing that well before the deal closes, and then working very hard and very deliberately to make sure that you capture those synergies post-closing. Big biotech, as you mentioned, has been drawing a period of strong internal growth, but should they be taking any lessons here from big pharma as their own patent cliff is approaching and biosimilars become a market reality? How's this going to shape their M&A strategies in the years to come? Yeah, yeah that's, that's a good question. I think that sort of all the lessons that big pharma has been learning about um, you know, doing, doing intelligent M&A, being, staying very focused. Um, apply to big biotech, particularly the larger ones that are that are maturing, and we do expect that we we may see some some more M and A from biotech in the coming years. Um, we we also see biotech um, in and as well as some of the pharma companies um, c- coming under uh, potential scrutiny from shareholder activists. That that's a trend that's been growing across industries, but. The spotlight really turned on the, the life sciences industry uh, in 2014, and we expect to see more of that going forward as well. And that's going to keep, you know, all management teams really focused on um, really staying sharp from an operational performance perspective, making sure their cost structures are rationalized, making sure that R&D is, funds are being allocated the right way, and making sure that they're, they're managing their portfolios in, uh, in, in the best way to, to optimize shareholder value. So what's the M&A outlook for 2015? Are there going to be major themes you see on the horizon? Well, I think it's a continuation of the themes that we've seen. The, the growth imperative is still there. The, the growth gap still exists for many of these companies. Um, we, we expect, as I said, to see shareholder activism being a bigger, a bigger um, factor going forward. Uh, we expect biotech to be, be more active. Um, and in fact, we, we did a survey just a few months ago and asked a number of, of, uh, of uh, executives around the world, senior executives. We, we, we surveyed about 1,500, but 100 of them were in the life sciences um, space. Um, 62%, 62% of them said, said they expected more M&A in 2015, and uh, a, a roughly the same amount, almost two-thirds, expected more hostile M&A going forward as well. So we think it's going to be another robust year, um, even adjusting for the the spike in transactions driven in part by by inversion, inversions. You know, we, we we see the environment continuing to be fairly benign for M and A, uh, and the strategic need is really there. So uh, so we're, we're expecting a, another strong year in 2015. Jeff Green, ENY's Global Life Sciences Transaction Advisory Services Leader. Jeff, thanks as always. Thank you, Danny. Take care. A few housekeeping notes. I wanted to thank our listener, Jason Knight, for the invaluable advice he provided us in upgrading the equipment for this podcast. We hope you heard a difference this week. Over on our sister podcast, Rarecast, 
you can hear from Ethan Perlstein of Perlstein Lab on expanding the potential for crowdfunding. And starting on January 23rd, Ben McKielsa, CEO of the newly formed Vitesse, will discuss the way new models can accelerate the development of drugs for rare diseases. Tune in next week to the Bio Report when the University of Rochester's Ray Dorsey discusses an article he co-authored in JAMA that takes a look at the United States' declining investment in biomedical R&D and what can be done to address that. Thanks for listening. The Bio Report is a production of the Levine Media Group. To automatically download this podcast each week, subscribe to our RSS feed or through iTunes or other podcast manager. To join our mailing list, go to levinemediagroup.com. We'd love to hear from you. If you want to drop us a line or are interested in sponsoring this podcast, send an email to danny at levinemediagroup.com. Special thanks to Jonah Levine, who composed our theme music, and the Jonah Levine Collective, which performs it.